The Appendix N Podcast, Episode 44, Missourian the Magician by Jack Vance. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we discuss the tales of the authors that appeared in Appendix N of the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, meant to serve as inspirational reading for those who would master the dungeons of fantasy. Prepare your spells and come with us in four directions, then one. If you have an unquenchable boy that yearns for knowledge, perhaps a visit to the Museum of Man will satisfy you. In the last days of Earth, with a dwindling red sun burning like a coal in the dark blue sky, adventure still awaits. For those of you listening at home, you are encouraged to read along with us and send us your comments. Listen to the end of the episode for some of the stories we'll be discussing on future episodes your thoughts to thetomeshow at gmail.com. Before we get to the main topic, let us have a word from our sponsor. Ah! Hey, it's me, Snurg! I don't really like Noble Knights that much, but noblenight.com is okay by me. You know why? They got tons of products for me where I can just be hiding in dungeons and stuff like that. Also, it's it's really, really cool. I get to find all these bestiaries that I can fill my dungeon with and all kinds of goblin miniatures. So check out Noble Knight. They'll even buy old gaming products that you aren't using anymore, and they're awesome. NobleKnight.com. Make sure you tell them the Tome Show sent you. And now, on with the show. Uh, joining me, as always, is my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. I am thrilled, as always, to be here. I know you've been waiting a long time to do Jack, Jack Vance. Have I really been talking about Jack Vance and how great Jack Vance is as much as I, I must have, given the amount of teasing that I've gotten about it? It, it, it feels like it. Have I, have I teased you? I don't think I think I've teased you, but um, that was, that was some, somebody else. Uh, I mean, I'm also I'm also interested in August Derleth, whom we've already done, mm-hmm. and uh, Lynn Carter, right? He's going to crop up eventually. Um, you know, the Nine Princes in Amber, you know, off towards the towards the end. Uh, Lord of the Rings, blah 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 blah. So what what you're saying is you like lots of books. I like lots of books. I like this book. I like this book a lot. I never, I had never read uh, Jack Vance until I started doing the Appendix N podcast, and then I was like, oh, I'm, we're eventually going to get to this. Why don't I go ahead and read it now? Because it's something that I've always been kind of vaguely interested in, but never had the wherewithal to read. And then I read it, and I liked it a lot, way more than I was expecting to. The low expectations that I had going in, I guess, caused me to be so, so pleased by it. You know who else also excites me? Our re- returning guest, Peter Foxhoven. Hey guys, thanks for having me on again. We'll edit this Peter. all together in post. It'll it'll sound great. <laughs> yeah, Jeff's uh, Jeff's doing editing now, so um, this this is all on on him. Nice. Since since he he volunteered, I I volunteered him. It's a fun little thing. <laughs> returning to to the show is our re- returning guest, Peter Foxhoven. Peter, it's been a while since we've had you on the the Appendix N show. Would you would you care to reintroduce yourself to the listening audience? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess, you know, Peter Foxhoven, big D&D player, because I guess that's why I'm on here. Big Robert E. Howard aficionado, kind of my jam. But I like a lot of the other things uh, from uh, the Appendix N. So Dying Earth, like the Jack Vance stuff, I started reading several years ago when I was working as a uh, 
uh, substitute teacher uh, mm. to put myself through grad school. Mm -hmm. So would have these periods where I had nothing to do. And unlike a real teacher who has actually something to do during off periods, they just were like, yeah, just sit around and like, you know, read a book. So this is the book that I chose for like my first semester that I was a substitute teacher. So you, so you actually have more experience with Jack Vance than, than us. I don't know if that qualifies as more experience because I've only read through that the orb book that you and I were talking about. We both have, I've mm -hmm. read through that once like that, that I read when I was in grad school. That sounds like about as much Jack Vance reading as I have done. I am the person who decided Peter, that you would be the good choice, the best, the best choice for the, the third chair during this uh, discussion of Missouri and the magician, because I thought that as a Conan, the barbarian subject matter expert, um, as you are, you might have interesting things to say about Jack Vance and the Dying Earth, and all of the ways in which uh, Conan and Missouri and the Magician are basically the same guy. I was kind of picking that up too. I, outside of the magic, you know, there's such similarities of, of their characterization that. Uh, but I also like it because the worlds couldn't be more different, yet more similar. Right? There's there's this definite magic is so powerful and it's so forgotten and the world is the world that we live in, but it's not the world that we live in in this case anymore. Or in that case, you know, it was in a pre cataclysmic era. Like I like it. You're getting kind of things from both ends of the spectrum, but it's that little horseshoe where they start meeting back together, which is kind of the beauty of those old modules too. You got a little fun, you know, little sci-fi mixed in with your fantasy sort of thing. This book kind of kicked off a whole sub-genre, the Dying Earth genre, things that take place in the unfathomably distant future and feature both um, ancient high technology and magic side-by-side uh, -side and in harmony, which is something that explicitly magic and explicitly high technology being blended, I think, is a new thing at this point. Um, as we go through the appendix in chronology. And it's something that shows up again and again in the future. I'm, the thing that springs to my mind is actually He-Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, can, I, also... I can see that. Was, was, was this before uh, Arthur C. Clarke made his famous uh, quote? I don't know. Let me consult I... Dr. Internet. To Arthur C. Clarke's um, sufficiently advanced technology, blah, 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 is actually from 1973, so a good couple of decades in the future relative to the dying Earth stuff like the like the Numenera RPG and the and the Numenera campaign setting are direct descendants of this of this writing. Uh, I, I wanna briefly go through Jack Vance's uh bio before we get to the actual discussion of of the book because that's just something that, that we do here. Uh, John Holbrook Vance, later known as Jack Vance, was born August 28, 1916 in San Francisco, and he passed away May 26, 2013, so we, we just missed him by about four years. Uh, Vance spent his childhood in San Francisco and then in Oakley, California. He attended the University of California, Berkeley. Um, Weak eyesight prevented him from entering military, military service, but in 1943, he became a U.S. Merchant uh, Marine, and he was serving as a Merchant Marine during uh, World War II, which is when he wrote the first stories that, that would become the first volume of The Dying Earth, and these were not published until 1950 in paperback by Hillman Periodicals, uh, and he, he had apparently submitted some stories to magazines before then. 
Jack Vance, at least according to Wikipedia, didn't become established as a writer until the 1970s. Uh, he won a ton of awards, including a, a Hugo, and he won an, an Edgar for uh, mystery writing. Uh, none of these awards, I, I guess, except for some lifetime achievements, having to do uh, specifically with the with the the, the dying Earth. Uh, he also wrote mysteries and even wrote uh, three books under the name uh, Ellery Queen, which is a pseudonym that's been used been, that's been used by a number of authors. Uh, Vance most often cited Jeffrey Farnell as one of his influences. Uh, also among his influences, P.G. Wodehouse, L. Frank Baum, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Robert W. Chambers, and Jules Verne. Uh, in 2009, George R. R. Martin ed edited a collection of stories in tribute to Jack Vance called Songs of the Dying Earth. And Neil Gaiman was a fan, which is not surprising because Neil Gaiman is a fan of basically everyone who's significant in sci-fi and fantasy. And if he, if he wasn't a writer, an awesome writer in his, in his own own right, I think he'd just be a professional fan. Neil Gaiman's first publication was a very, very fanish reader's guide to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. Yeah, I've, I've read that, yeah. I would say also the, the nerd in me has to point out the just generous flavoring when you're saying like He-Man, I got that too, but like Thundar the Barbarian and that the old Jack Kirby comic book, Common D... Oh, the yeah. Last boy. Yeah. Like, Command this had that flavoring. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like, uh, you know, the Gamma World uh, RPG to some extent that mm -hmm. uh, the TSR put out. Yeah. This, but this isn't quite as, as bonkers. Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if, if Gamma World started out as being like funny, but it, it, it gained a reputation for, for being like bonkers and over the top. This is, this is very ro romantic, dreamlike. Uh, I I made the the comparison before we started we started recording to uh, Le, Le Mort de, de Arthur and the and the and the French authored tales of Arthurian questing knights. Uh, there's there's definitely definitely a very French flavor to this 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 whole thing in the in the names and the sense of of on ennui in 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 dying earth. Yeah, the um it, the dying earth is a lot of things, but it's not silly. I think is is an important point to make because, and I say that because um, another thing that it really reminded me of when I was rereading it this time uh, was Adventure Time, the cartoon show, which is similarly mm. set in the distant future, mixes magic and technology explicitly. But you know, there's some some extra added silliness in Adventure Time. Right, and everything here seems so much more melancholy in its overtone because of just the acceptance of everyone that the sun is going out, right? Which is a huge part of it, that this is an, it's orbiting this old Earth star is now so old that they know that the Earth's time is limited and yeah. life's possibility on Earth is coming to an end. And it's almost come to this sort of, I, I guess melancholy may not be the right term, but there's just this morbid acceptance of it where people will just make almost a passing comment. Well, they're like, well, yeah, but if Earth survives, either that or Earth will die first. Right. And everyone yeah. just kind of accepts yeah. that it's on the fringe of that happening. What are you going to do? The sun's going to go out. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, dis despite this dismal setting, there there's really no sense of widespread suffering. Like everyone seems to be 
partying and living it up we we really get no sense of like how governments work like how do people eat are there are there slaves like who 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 grows the food and the books the the stories just kind of skip skip over that because that's not important every everyone that that we meet like has plenty plenty of food has clothes has shelter like even even the one guy we meet in uh tiseus's story who lives in a in a cabin like he he just hangs out in his in his cabin all day like is he is he growing food we don't we don't worry about that that's not Im, yeah, important yeah so all right so uh jack vance wrote four collections of tales of the, of the dying earth over over the years we're just covering the first collection published in 1950 the collection is often just referred to as the dying earth uh, Jack Vance's preferred title is Missourian the Magician, which is also the name of the second story in the collection. Um, who who would just like to list off all the stories in the collection for the for the read, for the listener who might not have picked up a up a copy? Sure, I can I can do that. Um, so actually, this is interesting. Is in the version that I have the uh, the Kindle edition of Missourian the Magician. Missourian the Magician is actually the first story. Uh, though it looks like the order of them is otherwise unchanged, probably be- just because the title of the volume is Missouri and the Magician, so they moved that mm-hmm. to the to the front. Um, so Missouri and the Magician is about a magician named Missourian who has another magician prisoner. He uh, is investigating this woman who keeps swinging by where he lives and kind of taunting him. He goes, he chases her, she leads him on a chase, ultimately defeats him, though it's a close thing because he has you know, massive uh, magic at his command. Then she circles back to his home and frees the uh, magician who is Miserian's prisoner, Turgeon, uh, maiming herself in the process. And Turgeon declares that he will, he will fix her. He will repair her. Then the second story is entitled Turgeon, and it's set actually prior to Missouri and the Magician. And in that one, Turgeon is trying to master the secret art of growing people in vats. Um, he is driven to consult the mighty wizard Pandalume, who lives in a pocket dimension and has a flawed vat-grown daughter, Tiseus. Uh, Turgeon learns the secrets of making uh, vat-grown people, grows his own uh, vat-grown daughter, uh, names her Tisayan, and it was Tisayan who rescued Magir- M- rescued him from Missyrian, uh in the future. The third story is Tisayus. It's about this vat-grown daughter and how she leaves the pocket dimension and wanders about for a while, um, eventually meeting Etar, another wizard, who had his face stolen by an evil sorceress. Uh, together they team up to defeat the evil sorceress, and unfortunately, Atar's face is permanently destroyed in the process, so she's stuck with this guy who doesn't have a face. The story after that is Leanne the Wayfarer, who is a bandit who uh, tries to mug Tiseus early in her story, and uh, is what seems to me to have get killed for the uh, get killed for it. But in this story, he is all fine and dandy. He finds a magic ring. He meets a beautiful witch. He is sent on a quest and is ultimately murdered with his eyes plucked out, uh, which is great because he's not that great a guy. <laughs> 
then there's Ulandor. The title character there is Uland is Ulandor. He's the nephew of a local prince who wanders off to seek powerful magic. He's sent by his uncle, the uh, the prince, to do this. Uh, he eventually finds an ancient city, which is very much like an episode of Adventure Time. You have two factions of people who each have been enchanted to believe that uh, the other side does not exist. So they are coexisting within the city, but they can't see one another or interact. Uh, eventually, Ulandor figures out... Um, what's causing this and destroys the spell that's doing it and ends up fighting a what is either some kind of lich or maybe a powerful ai it's really left uh, left unclear mm-hmm. and he and he and a local girl escape in a flying car then the last episode is gaiol of Sefer who is just this dude who wanders around looking for the answers to life, the universe, and everything, more or less. He's, uh, he's in search of the, muse- the curator of the Museum of Man, because where he's from, there's this aphorism, go ask the curator of the Museum of Man, whenever you have a question that nobody can answer. He wanders around for quite a while. He eventually finds the Museum of Man, which is uh, being besieged by demons. He teams up with the immortal curator to defeat the demons, him and a, another, yet another local girl. Uh, he and the local girl defeat the demons. The curator dies, uh, names them the new curator. And it also turns out that the Museum of Man is a spaceship which is ready to take off and go to a distant young star with its storehouse of all the accumulated knowledge hmm. of 21 eons of Earth uh, since the the sun that Earth, the Earth goes around is about to go out. So Earth is pretty much used up. And uh, But don't worry, Gaal is going to fly off in his new spaceship and uh, you know, re- that's, uh, restart everything. That's some interesting interpretations. I never I never got that, that the Museum of, of Man that Gaal of Sphere visited was a was a spaceship. I, I, the ending to me, I, I, I got that, 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 that the knowledge he got from the books was, was going to teach him how to get to the stars. But um, maybe I missed a line because I, I just finished reading it it today. Uh, also, at the end of Tiseus's story, uh, the guy does get his face back. They, oh, does they he? Go on a, yeah, they they go on a quest and they meet basically a good deity in a in a temple, and they're like, "Please." Give oh, that's right. That's right. Sorry. Yeah, they, they they basically like 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 take the witch that that stole his face to this to this temple, and and the there's there's a Deus ex, ex Machina in the temple who punishes evil and and rewards good. So Peter, yeah, which uh, which of these stories was your favorite? We'll we'll start with with that one. Okay, um, <clears throat> that one's hard for me. I guess I'd have to go. Um, God, it's kind of a toss up. I'm really a big fan of both Turgeon of Mir and Ulandor. Ulandor I loved just because of all of the sci-fi elements, the flying cars, the idea of having two the you know the two rival groups, the grays mm-hmm. and the greens that can't see each other. They were uh, reminded me a little bit of I mean not in the fact that they couldn't see each other but just this ancient enmity between the two peoples of the Conan story that we uh read uh, Red Nails which mm-hmm. is that sort of Mm-hmm. quasi Aztec quasi Egyptian society where they're all kind of locked in together. And it's just one yeah. large labyrinth. The, the sort of on the nose social commentaries reminded me of like an episode of Star Trek, how they, how they might've, might've handled something, something like that. 
Right, yeah, it'd be really easy to put Kirk in the space of Ulandor or, you know, one of the other main cast who can see what's going on, but everyone else is blind to it and trying to uncover it. I also like that the idea of what you guys talked about, or what Jeff talked about, that is it a lich or is it AI, right? Like, what is the, the I'm trying to remember his name, it starts with a D. And Rogal Domendonfors. Yes, the the very same. And he's a he's a brain in a in a jar. Right. It it seems like um but it's cool because it is true. I mean, I like that it immediately goes to when he his sense of time is to look at the half-life of one of the elements in the machine, this un you know, really unexplained machine or whatever that he's made that mm. lives under the city and that's how he knows that he's been out for like 5,000 years is because of you know, he can look at where the radioactive decay is on some element. And I thought that was cool. It was like a nice blending. Yeah, this this is a really cool s- story, and I, I I did in enjoy the 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 whole like like the fact that 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 the end guy is basically a brain in a in a jar, who's in control of these of these giant black tentacles, which seems like it's the inspiration for the spell black black tentacles. Evard's black tentacles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, how he's described it, is a glistening round top cylinder, black and vitreous. The cylinder quivered, softened, became barely transparent, slumped a trifle. In the center hung a pulpy white mass, a brain, question mark, uh, which it, it's able to sprout pseudopods, the cylinder is, um, mm-hmm. and form eye and mouth. So it's it really just seems like a cartoon character. <laughs> Right, it's like I can't I can't visualize uh, Rogal Domendonfors as anything but a character out of Adventure Time. Really, yeah. is it is it an AI or is it a brain in a jar or is it a lich or what? Well, I'm 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 reminded of of uh, Whisperer in 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 Darkness, just with a with a little more an- animation mm. to it. Yeah, brain in a jar. But yeah, I mean these and 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 the black tentacles re- re- we've. We've had a number of, of 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 things that are sort of like uh, Shagoths. We 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 had that that one Fawford and and Gray Mauser story where like an entire house turned into basically uh, Shagoth, and and here we've we've learned that uh, Ro, Rogor Domendefor's in invention is basically a Shagoth. It's it's a it's a giant mass of of black tentacles that can shape itself into anything. It 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 sounds like and is able to uh, first re- repair the city and then and then demolish the city in a mm-hmm. in a in a matter of of seconds. I like that we find that at the end, what he wanted it seems was to be worshipped as a god himself. So for you know the spoiler here for those who may have not read it before they're listening to this is that what separates these two groups of people within this city ultimately is having a different god. Right. Their religions are, are antithetical to each other for some reason. And they're at war for a long time. So Rogal kind of dips out for a bit, makes these two tablets and says, you know, when you guys can both assemble them, gives one to one, one to the other, then you'll get this great wisdom. But it seems that what he really wants is to rule them himself. I mean, he even says in there when it's Ulan and uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, that they're, uh, you know, that these are going to be the start of the new race that will worship him and everything. And that's when Ulandor is sort of like, oh, uh, hmm. maybe 
maybe got to put a stop to this guy. So it I gives thought... us more, a more menace. It seems in the beginning when you're reading it and you're kind of piecing it together that, oh, he just wanted the society to peacefully coexist, you know, and like this city that he worked so hard on and he was making mm. really nice and labored intensively to give them every luxury they could. Instead, they become factioned and they're warring about these religions when really what he wants is to be worshipped himself and to be revered as a deity in his own right and having these two dominant religions is definitely going to cramp that. Yeah, style, I mean, what really know? prompts him to... What prompts Ulan to attack him is when Rogal is ranting about how he is just going to kill everybody in the city and then uh, create a new race of people from um, Ulan and Eli, the girl that's with him. And mm -hmm. Ulan is like, I don't want to be the progenitor of a, the progenitor slash slave of an immortal uh, god machine. Um, so now, now is the time to strike while, his, while he's distracted. He, he smashes the cylinder, which is awesome. It's a good that bit. surprise round was very good for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then he escapes in a, in a flying car. It's just, it's so, um, so televisual. Yeah, so so going going back to uh, Turjan of 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 Mir, which which basically introduces us to the to the dying Earth, unless you, I guess, bought the Kindle edition. Uh, I mean, like like just just the first few pages of this of this story, like like really, really like gets you gets you in there because it, it 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 starts with uh, Turjan. He's created a a vat person. And it's 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 this dying thing. So and so he he leaves his failed that person to die, and he and he goes out to his spell book, and right away he starts pre preparing spells, and it explains that like he can only fit so many spells in his mind at a at a time because these these spells are are so potent, but because he had such a powerful mind, um, he can fit. What is it? Four, four, four spells, four spells in his in his brain. And when we when we read uh, Mazurian's story, he can he can fit six or four of the really good ones. Yes. Uh, and 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 the spells have names like you would find in Dungeons and Dragons, like the, the excellent prismatic spray, Fandal's mantle of of stealth. stealth. Yeah. The, the spell of, of the slow hour and my favorite part if you couldn't tell from the in introduction uh, when when he goes to dimension hopping his, his his instructions are to go four directions then then one which is basically nonsense but it like just, just like just that phrase is like so evocative it's it's takes the form of like this ritual passphrase Mm -hmm. um, his instructions to get to the that he finds to reach the pocket dimension are to cast a spell called Call to the Violent Cloud, mm -hmm. which summons a pillar of smoke, and the smoke asks the question, At your disturbing power is this instrument come, whence will you go? And Turgeon replies, Four directions, then one, alive, I must be brought to Embelion. Embelion being the name of the place that he's trying to get mm -hmm. to. But I, I definitely got the impression that if Turgen messed it up and said six directions, then one, the pillar would have just ripped him to pieces. Well, like the, the, the narration then says four directions he was thrust, then then one. So he really did go four directions and, and then one. And we're just left to ponder what that actually means. I think we can both be right. I also I also interpreted uh, Embelion as an, an, another planet. 
That was me too. I, I assumed it was in a different solar system. A different solar system, really, because the I figured the sky being um, a great big rainbow was a kind of a giveaway that it was someplace other than simply a planet. Yeah, he 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 basically gets uh, transported into into a, a metal album cover or or a Lisa Frank <laughs> poster. Yeah, visualize like a a yes album, except the sky is a Lisa Frank poster, and that's <laughs> yeah. that's where he goes. Yeah, I mean, also having uh, just seen uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two last last month, I was I was picturing uh, ego, you know, just 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 this this, this giant uh, CGI ex- extravaganza. I never thought I would live to see ego the living planet in a movie. Well, well, there you go. Now you can now you can die fulfilled. Yeah, but uh, but you know that's uh, the the comic booky combination of magic and technology is yet another example of uh, of that form that we see for perhaps the first time here. So we we in, encounter Pandalume, and he, he's this this guy that apparently you can't look at, and. Um, Unlike unlike a lot of pulp adventure stories where we eventually get sort of an explanation as to why you might not be able to look at Pandalume, here we're never told. It just remains a mystery for, forever, and I, I kind of like that. Yeah, to, to, to say as he just is cryptic in saying that there would be dire consequences. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it. That, you're right. There's no – but he's there's something about his structure or form or being that he just shouldn't be looked at. It, it was when I read it, I thought it was entirely possible that it was just that Pandalume was, uh, you know, deeply shy and did not want to be looked at. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed at least as plausible an explanation as him laboring under some kind of curse. So and when... it could also be like a shout out since Bomb was uh, one of Vance's uh, inspirations. It could be kind of an homage to the Wizard of Oz. And the whole band behind the curtain. Yeah. Although, unlike the Wizard of Oz, Pandalume actually is an exceedingly powerful wizard. He's so powerful, he has learned how to do calculus. Yeah, we, we, we sort of learn from him that that, that uh, magic in the dying earth is, is all just based on mathematics. He explains it kind of vaguely enough that that really could mean just about anything. Um, it's not clear whether he's... Uh, trying to tap into, shoot, what's the name of the castle in iron, and um, you know where the guy the, uses the, math the... to travel through, about travel between worlds. Uh, well, he was he was using name? using logic, but uh, yeah, how the the Harold Shea. Yeah, yeah, the Harold Shea, exactly, exactly. The Harold Shea adventures where he's using formal logic basically to do magic, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of difference between that and using mathematics to do magic. But it's it's it's, it's in the first two. Stories in the in the in the Turjan's story and the and the Mazirian story, where where we really get what what became the Vancian casting system in Dungeons and Dragons. It it doesn't quite show up as much after that, um, but like here here's where we get like like you must prepare spells and you can only fit so many in your in your brain and the spells have these weird weird names and and once you cast them you can't use them any anymore. Um, Oh yeah, and, this this is it. This is Vance and casting. Kind of like a like a science, which is which is how D and D treats our our arcane magic. It's it's like a science. When you when you cast a spell, you you get the same result every time. Just plug in the numbers for size and distance, and off off you go. That uniformity in the spells, the fact that you get the same thing every time, um, 
is, I think, another like piece of the puzzle in terms of how magic as presented here differs from magic as presented in things that we have already read for Appendix N. Um, in later Dying Earth stories, we're introduced to people like Rialto the Marvelous, who basically have the ability to command powerful supernatural entities, and they can just wave their hands and order their servants to do whatever. But Mazurian um, mm -hmm. and Turgeon have very, very specific and limited, um, limited effects, which are at the same time incredibly powerful. And that's a combination that I don't, again, I don't know that we've seen before prior to this. This, I, I think that may be a, a thing that's new with, uh, with the Dying Earth. And it definitely is what gives D&D its unique feel for magic. You know, I think that when you look at other systems that maybe use like points for magic where you like, you know, have effects that you can do and you have like a, a spell point pool or things like that. I'm trying to think of a system off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, that what kind of separates it is that exactly what you're talking about. You have on the one hand, you know, magic being something that might be inherent, like where Gandalf's magic comes from, right? It's part of who he is, right? Because yeah. he's Maiar or whatever. And then you have the the more Robert E. Howard approach, which is, you know, Thothamon was nothing without the without the serpent's ring. Yeah. Right? And... That's what gave him his magical power. But he needed some powerful object to give him that this. This is just study, right? That the human mind could grasp these powerful incantations simply by rote if mm. if if they had the right literature. And there yeah, and it it, it it they they feel like executing a, a com computer program. Uh, if, if you've ever seen the anime Scrapped uh, uh, Princess, that's a fantasy series where where that sort of idea is is uh, fully explored. Mm -hmm. But it it makes me wonder like how far along uh, computers were in, in in the 1940s when when Jack Vance was was writing this. I mean, certainly in the in the Museum of Man, there's there's banks of objects which which kind of sound like they're they're the giant room filling com computers of the of of the 1940s the idea of a computer that was an electronic brain that had an enormous number of facts at its command and you could ask it a question and get an answer is something that uh, i think would have been within vance's experience but like computer programming itself and how it works was something that i would i don't think was really in the uh in the popular imagination. There was a general purpose computer called ENIAC, introduced in 1946, which kind of caught the popular imagination by storm. And it was ENIAC that really inspired things like um, uh, a logic named Joe and other other stories about in super intelligent computers, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But the... The, like the formal process of programming instructions, I don't think is something that Vance would have been exposed to. Hmm. Okay. The, the thing that I think is interesting about it is that all all of these magic systems that have come after Dungeons and Dragons have looked at this Vancean framework and uh, rejected it in favor of of trying to make it more similar to. Uh, the magic that we've seen in stuff, uh, mm -hmm. stuff up to this point, right? You know, uh, Vancean magic, a spell can do anything, right? There's, there's no limitation on what a spell can do. So a wizard can accomplish anything if with, with a high enough level spell, 
you know, if you right because it's 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 just knowledge of a of a process. Yeah, so that's different from like having black wizards who can only use destructive magic and white wizards who can only use healing magic and summoners who can only you know, call in espers and time mages and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all wizards are necessarily general purpose. And that's something that, you know, D&D itself got away from with specialist wizards and, and so forth. But that was the, the original conception was that a wizard was somebody who could do anything. You know, all, all that was required was the right spell and the right uh, spell slot. And mm -hmm. the spell slot system is so weird and cumbersome that unless you're really trying, I think, to ape the dying earth genre, it's easiest just to kind of pretend that it's not happening. Because it, I... it, 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 it opens the door to so many questions, right? You're a wizard, you study, you study for like 20 years, and you gain the ability to cast uh, one or four or however many first level spells. And then suddenly, a month later, you can cast second level spells. You know, what, what, what does that... It, it's it's hard to imagine that the wizards within the world don't don't notice that that their spells come to them in a a progression and from that back calculating uh, levels casting fireballs noticing that the higher the the more powerful wizards fireballs are a lot hotter they do more damage than uh, lower can, level wizards you can you can apply that you can you can apply that to all the classes you know suddenly some something the sure. fighter the fighter can can kill a dragon with with one thrust so but in a lot of it, in a lot of it though the kind of the abstraction um, of what is a hit points and and so forth kind of disguises that but because the magic uh, the magic system is so systematic and specific mm -hmm. which which absolutely stems from these stories it's yeah, kind of. It, it's it's a, a little bit more of a strain. I think I think it, it's also because m most people haven't read the Dying Earth. I like I I I hadn't even heard of Jack Vance, you know, until I started playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons and started and started asking, hey, why is this spell system so so weird? Yeah. So like m more people are familiar with types of magic, you know, the the, the types of magic that show up in in uh, Tolkien or Arthurian tales or or other stories. I mean, the Vancean casting is specific to the writings of Jack Vance. I was I was definitely out of college, I think, before I learned that the phrase Vancean casting was referencing a guy named Jack Vance. Right? I, Vancean was just some weird adjective that I I did not know what was. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Peter? Well, so, yeah, this is going to be this is going to be a super like out there possibly answer to this but you guys remember in first edition and second edition how not every class leveled at the same time kind of yeah okay yeah. so the xp threshold for level one was generally that a thief would hit it first followed by a cleric followed by a fighter followed by a magic user okay uh, yeah. now this starts to reverse itself in mid levels right by mid levels you're getting wizards that are leveling a little bit faster than a fighter is leveling now here's how i've always explained this to myself okay that when you're first learning to thief Right. Getting better at stealing somebody's pocketbook is appreciates very quickly, but then mastery of it becomes difficult. Right. Once you're pretty good at stealing from somebody, it just comes down to the pure finesse of the thing. Right. So then it, it tapers off. Same things with swinging a sword. Yeah. Right away, you're not going to be super great at it. You're going to build really fast. The more you swing that sword, the better you're going to be with it. But true mastery of sword play is going to take how many battles, whereas being a wizard, since it's based off of the human capacity to learn, think about our own primary, secondary, and post-secondary 
experiences, right? That that first part is these little steps, right? And it takes a very long time to master some very basic concepts or very basic skills that you're doing again and again so that ultimately you can learn greater concepts or start synthesizing the knowledge you have, and then it all comes very quickly. The difference between in, you know, a freshman in high school class to an intro to college class, or even bigger, a 400 level college class versus an intro college class, right? By the time you hit those, you're learning much more quickly. You're synthesizing that information a lot more quickly um, than you would. And I've always thought that that was the explanation for why suddenly in mid-levels, wizards start leveling more quickly is because suddenly they've done the groundwork that they know the vocabulary of the discipline. They're not having to look up these different words or really go through what things are referencing. You know, you don't need to look and say, when you read Hegel and he makes a reference to Kant and say, oh, what did Kant say? You've read Kant, right? So you can click that in and figure out where it loops together. And so then you're really learning. And then the slow, you slow back down at higher levels because, you know, just like when you're doing, you know, you know, uh, graduate work or postgraduate work, you know, what you're doing is so highly specified and it requires so much experimentation and so much proof for what you're doing that that slows the process back down again. This is how I always explained it to myself, at least. I don't know if that's in any way satisfactory. No, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Now, now do the, do the cleric. Gods are freaking weird and they <laughs> dole out, and they dole out powers whenever they will. I have no real explanation for that. I purposefully skipped that one. I was hoping you weren't going to notice. <laughs> I think that's a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, yeah. Works for me. One thing that I feel like is really nailed down and hit hard in these stories is the limited number of spell slots. And it's kind of, I guess, interesting that pretty much every edition of Dungeons and Dragons, and I'm generalizing here, but pretty much every edition of Dungeons and Dragons has worked to to give the magic user more spell slots um, on the grounds that casting spells is fun, not ha- not casting spells is boring, and you want to be able to cast as many spells as possible. Right, a, a game is is different from a from a from a story, and when yeah. what what works to create tension in a in a narrative isn't isn't fun at the at the table. But I the, I have to wonder what a um what a version of Dungeons and Dragons you know published back in the seventies would look like if it used I think I only saw this in Thirteenth Age, the idea that the wizard gets a finite number of spell slots, and as the wizard levels up those spell slots become more powerful, but he doesn't gain more of them. Um, you know, she gets a, a first-level spell slot, a second-level spell slot. Eventually, that first-level spell slot turns into a third-level spell slot. She could, ca- she could put a, a first-level spell in that slot, but um, it's just the slot is becoming more powerful rather than getting, getting new slots. Doesn't 5th doesn't edition work where, where, where you get, like, just, just four or five spells at... At a time, but but the but the levels of the spells you can memorize get get um, higher. Is that in fifth really, edition, really? Fifth edition is somewhat like that. Really, what the fifth edition class set is almost exactly what Jeff was talking about is the warlock. So the warlock, you'll learn new spells, but you don't necessarily get new spell slots. The maximum capacity spell slot that you're casting at, which changes all of your spells, goes up over time. Right. So not to get into the mechanics too much, you can prepare a first level spell and cast it at a third level spell slot 
for it to do maybe 2d8 extra damage, let's mm -hmm, say, mm -hmm. okay? If you're the Warlock, that option does not exist. Your choice in spells is severely limited compared to the other spellcasting classes. However, with level, all of them become that higher slot. So you're casting a first level spell, and by the end of, you know, by the time you hit 20th level, that first level spell is always cast at ninth level. That's that's interesting. I, as is probably obvious, I've never actually read the 5th edition player's handbook. I've read the uh, the basic rules PDF, uh, which does not feature the warlock. So mm. that explains my appalling warlock ignorance. Oh, I've also played one. So <laughs> like that's also part of it, because I, I didn't like that as much, but I kind of, I like the, the versatility of the traditional wizard, you know, and the idea that you have this huge repertoire of spells to choose from. Because it's what you were saying. I like that a wizard can do anything, but a wizard can't will anything. That's what's important. To me, that's what makes D&D D&D, right? The wizard can will whatever he wants, but he doesn't make it extant. It doesn't make it happen, right? He can make it happen if he has the knowledge, right? Will and knowledge are separated in D&D &D in, that, in that regard. Right. I like you, that. You, you have to di discover the right spell, both in the world as the character and in the real world as the player. You, you have to find the right spell in the rule book to do what you want to do and, and, and deploy it at the, at the opportune time. Right. And back in the day, you still had even percentile rolls to see if you could actually learn the spell, even if it was under the purview of you could cast a first level spell and you've just leveled, you still have a percent chance unless you have a real high uh, intelligence of not being able to even learn it. There's something about that spell that at that point in your learning its diagrams and its directions, its methodology is too foreign for you to commit to memory or to actually understand. I just, there's something about that I just love. I'm geeking out really hard over here <laughs> in Iowa. Like, just, <laughs> I love it so much, guys. Well, it's, I mean, again, but this is what other role-playing games and magic systems have kind of rebelled from, where magic is presented as a lot more like the Force. Mm -hmm. um, it's just this sort of ineffable vaguely defined set of powers that can be used for different things. Like, I'm thinking of, like, Willow in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She was casting spells, yes, but she could also just, you know, wave her hands and make magic and make uh, magic and make knives fly through the air. Right. I thought, I thought you were, you were, you were going to say Willow in Willow. A Willow in Willow <laughs> had the little sack of, uh, of acorns, right, that turned mm -hmm. things to stone. And it's a whole a... bunch of potential been so long since i uh since i saw willow i think i was in in elementary school so i just bought that thing on blu-ray because uh, wild it, hair up you know it it didn't it didn't hold hold up for me oh <gasps> jeff sorry <laughs> i thought i thought sorcerer was was cool anyway okay um <laughs> well i mean to cite a more recent example than the recent doctor strange movie Right, he's learning spells, qua spells, and yet by the end of the movie, he's just like making stuff happen. I don't really get the sense that he's casting spells so much anymore. He's just doing magic. Right, right. it's 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 like a it's like a martial art. Like you can you can just mix it up how however your your imagination strikes you. Yeah, that's a very right. apt comparison. I think like a martial art. So I, I kind of want to touch on the episode in in uh, in Guile of, of, of Sphere where, where he he uh, passes through the through the ruined village and th there's this uh, old man who's a who's a piper, um, just because I, I really liked it. Um, it's it 
it really really remind, reminded me of of um the the the, the music of of Erikson. So so Guile is is on his way to the to the museum of 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 man and he he stops in this in this ruined village and there's a girl in a in a in a yellow dress um which I mean any anyone in a, in yellow clothing is is going to instantly re- re- remind me of 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 Haster and the and the and the king in king in in yellow and um she has this this uncle who uh loves to play play the pipe and uh guy all goes in, 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 inside the house and there's this this old old man who's just playing a pipe and he's playing beautiful music and he he just won't put that pipe down and uh the girl really wants guy all to play to play the pipe and guy all pulls pulls out his 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 own pipe and and the girl's like well that's nice but maybe you would like my uncle's pipe <laughs> and through this entire thing the the uncle like never stops playing and like at at times looks like downright frightened and looks looks hopeful when it 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 looks like guy all might accept play, playing the pipe it all just just kind of ends when guy all does a does a duet with this guy and and the music just grows more and more feverish, and I, I forget exactly what what happens, but Guile just like bolts. Yeah, it's it's a lovely use of dramatic irony because I think the reader susses out the situation pretty early on, and it's um, it's fun to watch as Guile clearly has his own suspicions and acts on them. Yeah, I, I'm still not exactly sure what the situation was, but I, I think I think the pipe was was cursed. Yeah, the the pipe was cursed. The girl was making the so-called uncle uh, play the pipe. The uncle was cursed to play the pipe until somebody else started to play the pipe. You know, the details beyond that are you know, shrouded in technicality, but we can we can induct uh, a certain amount, of, induce a certain amount of uh, induct with inductive reasoning. We can uh, extract a certain amount of uh, information. With the, the, I think, I think, I think the 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 lack of like like an actual exposition, like just 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 make is is what makes this this episode so so magical. Like like he like the the author just trusts you to figure stuff out, which which authors of these stories very very rarely do. That's certainly true. It was um, as Siobhan pointed out uh, in the last episode that we recorded. Uh, it was really fashionable in sci-fi and fantasy um, for a long time, and to a certain extent, it still is. Uh, to just really hit the uh, hit the hammer on the uh, hit the nail on the head with the hammer, make it really clear what your story was about because of this massively uh, clever idea that you had, and uh, the whole point of the story is to explain what the clever idea was. And, and I, I can't I can't help but notice that that she that she's wearing a a yellow dress. And when when he gets to the village of the of the of the Sapenids, their sacrifices are are also made to wear 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 yellow dresses. So like I'm wondering if she's a sacrifice who who escaped, or or if that's just a just a coincidence. I guess we'll we'll never never know. We'll never we'll never know. Oh, and and Guile also has like a like a magic egg that that that, that can just like make an inescapable like bubble over him, which is which which is so like uh what like uh Leoman's hut or or Mordenkainen's mansion or, or or any of those or you know uh rope rope trick where you, where you can crawl into a um 
a a, a magic hole to a to a to a to a pocket dimension. Like it's 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 like any of those. Yeah, his father gives him like several magic items only after Guile promises not to ask him any more questions. So Guile doesn't get to ask what the magic items are, where they came from, etc. He just has the expansible egg and the scintillating dagger, which mm-hmm. he appears to forget about for about you know ninety percent of the story, and then he pulls it out when it becomes necessary for the plot. And then mm-hmm. a third thing that I don't remember what is. He also gets a gets a blessing that that he won't be harmed as as long as he doesn't stray from 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 the path, and I like I I thought this story was was the most Ar- Arthurian, uh, just, like just because of that of that blessing because it it seems like like it, it it seems like like divine magic rather than our our arcane magic to to bless someone like like that. I feel like a lot of the rune stuff. Sorry, I sounded pretty far away there. Um. A lot of the rune runic items that they had seemed. I, I would agree with you on that. That blessing and then the uh, items that they have with runes that give them protect, protection also seemed quasi divine to me as well. Yeah, and there's there there's a temple and there's there's a temple in uh, in Tesseus's uh, T- story where where we meet. I mean, it it could be you know just a benevolent alien or something, but it it plays out like a like a deity. They they go there and they and they pray and the the being re- rewards the just and punishes the wicked so yeah but in that case they the they explicitly state that that being was created by the inhabitants of the city to be a a powerful god and rule over them which does not exactly rule out the uh you know super intelligent ai situation and uh oh uh Li- uh Li- Liane, the the wayfarer had a had a port- portable hole I loved that so much because it was such a different take on a, on what a magic ring is. You know, this is such a far cry from Tolkien's magic ring mm-hmm. rings, I guess. You know, I I I was I dug that a lot. Well, when he when he first found it around like the the trunk of a of a tree, I, I figured, oh, it's it's a cursed ring. It it turns you into a tree, but that that turned out not to, to be to be the case. I loved reading his uh, his experimentation with it, figuring out what it did and how it worked. Although it struck me as like incredibly foolhardy in the world of the dying earth, to just randomly start experimenting with a mysterious item um, because of the sheer number of ways that it could kill you. Yeah, certainly an experienced D and D player would never do that. And there, there there seemed to be like fairy people living living on the dying earth because because twice we meet a a Tuke man who's a little guy riding on a dragonfly and if you if you give him salt he'll answer questions and then the deodens seemed some sort of like darker or more sinister fey creature yeah or or like a like a ghoul but of I... course you know we don't get we don't we never get exposition explaining exactly who and what all of these uh all of these creatures and people are right we're we're largely left to our own devices to figure it out from from context the vagueness is 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 what makes this this world so so evocative. elemental yeah yeah uh, uh, uh evocative elemental like your 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 mind just 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 comes up with with the primal image of of, of what these these things are i don't what what do you what do you guys guys want to talk about there's there's just so much i would like um, to uh to read uh, a portion from the dying earth uh, for the benefit of our listener who may be on the fence as to whether or not this is worth worth reading if y'all y'all don't mind okay this is from uh guile of sphere 
wandering the crumbled streets, he put the languid inhabitants such a spate of questions that one in wry jocularity commended him to a professional augur. This one dwelled in a booth painted with the sign of the Amokia Pleonastic Cabal. He was a lank brown man with red-rimmed eyes and a stained white beard. "'What are your fees?' inquired Guile cautiously. "'I respond to three questions,' stated the augur. "'For twenty terces, I phrase the answer in clear and actionable language. "'For ten, I use the language of Kant, which occasionally admits ambiguity. "'For five, I speak a parable, which you must interpret as you will, "'and for one terce, I babble in an unknown tongue. First, I must inquire how <laughs> profound is your knowledge.' "'I know all,' responded the augur. "'The secrets of red and the secrets of black, "'the lost spells of Grand Matholam, "'the way of the fish and the voice of the bird.' "'And where have you learned all these things?' "'By pure induction,' explained the augur. "'I retire into my booth, "'I closet myself with never a glint of light, "'and so sequestered I resolve the profundities of the world.' "'With all this precious knowledge at hand,' ventured Guyal, "'why do you live so meagerly, "'with not an ounce of fat to your frame "'and these miserable rags to your back?' The augur stood back in fury. Go along, go along! Already I have wasted fifty terces of wisdom on you, who never a copper to your pouch. If you desire free enlightenment, seek out the curator. <laughs> yeah, I I really liked like that that episode, and I can I can also sort of see where uh, Gygax might have gotten his his love for randomized tables because there there's a lot in these stories that that almost seem like they might have been generated by rolling on a, on a random table. Well, it also is indicative of how, like, what we think of as Gygaxian prose is kind of, or possibly, I don't mean to put words in anybody's mouth, but it's kind of like somebody attempting to write like Jack Vance and not quite make it, not quite hitting the mark. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. say that's fairly accurate. Which, you know, he was a, a once-a-generation genius, apparently, uh, Jack Vance was, so we, we can't hold it against anybody. <laughs> Yeah, no, like I, I definitely in, enjoy this this guy's this guy's uh, writing. He he writes in a in a high in in a high style, and it it never once seems like fake or or forced or you know too too florid or too purple. He he definitely does it better than than uh, Burroughs, I think. And uh, I I enjoy his stories more than more than Howard's. Uh, sorry, Peter. Yeah. Uh, can we can we touch on on June? June the the un, unavoidable because he's he's nasty and and creepy. June uh, the unavoidable is an is a tremendous monster. The fact that he's able to get through the portable hole is like a great DM trick and the sort of thing that would just anger you to no end if you were a player. Yeah, it does seem a little cheap. <laughs> well, he is called June the 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 unavoidable. And it's, 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 and, it's not like, and it's not like Leanne went through a whole series of quests to obtain that portable hole. It was just hanging from a tree. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. So maybe it's not a very good one. And it's 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 not like Leanne was a great person. Although I, I after after like two three stories of of like of like good guys, I I, I actually like in in enjoyed Leanne and and his 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 offbeat sense of sense of humor and his his sense of dress he he might have been the inspiration for the character larith the the beautiful who's a, a, a npc you fight in uh, the temple of elemental evil i got to take issue with the the claim stories about not good guys man mazirian the magician that was not a good dude that no. guy was that guy had questionable moral stances None of them were terribly, seemed terribly moral, with the possible exception of Turgeon. 
I thought um, Turgeon was okay. It's a little creepy that he invented sort of his perfect girl. But I also have seen Weird Science, so uh, I give it a pass. Well, maybe that maybe that uh, should transition us to talking, however, briefly about uh, gender and women in The Dying Earth. Uh, the, the real short version, listener, it's not great. No. <laughs> Um, I, I thought, I thought, uh, to, to say story was, was pretty good up until she, she met the guy and the guy sort of took over as pro protagonist. Um, I, I thought she was, she was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, every, everyone else is either like, like, like a robot or, or a damsel or, yeah, you have two vat-grown women. You have two like local girls. You kind of glom onto the hero towards the end of the story, so that he gets to kiss a girl at the end of it. And um, you have a couple of witches, and really the ones with the most agency are, perhaps unsurprisingly, the witches. I think, and <laughs> they're not really people that you root for all that much. Although I guess forced to choose between rooting for Liane and rooting for. Uh, what's her name? Lith. I would. I mm -hmm. would root for Lith. Yeah. Well, it's it's. Uh, she she just wants to get back inside her tapestry. Yeah, she has a clear goal, uh, it, which makes sense um, if you read all the way to the end of the story. Yeah, I don't. I I don't think um, to to say us being be, being a vat grown uh, woman is is necessarily. Um, a, a, a detriment. We've 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 had. I mean, there's, there's, there's Pinocchio. He's a, he's a boy who who wants to to become a real a real person. We've 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 had stories about male androids, male automatons that are searching for, um, identity and agency. Um, to to say and 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 to say as are 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 both uh, heroes in their in their uh, in their own stories but they are they are subservient also to the to the men in their stories so that's that's not that's not great yeah that's i mean it's problematic yeah right? it's 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 just that they're, she's they're they're both kind of end up being second class and i think that they're being that grown as opposed to quote-unquote real people is uh is is maybe part and parcel of that but i'm sorry peter you were going to say something and i just jumped um. uh, jumped on you Oh no, that's okay. To say us, I mean, her thing that that to me really speaks that the gender thing is an issue is that um, her actual her actualizing her own agency, right, and being able to accomplish her goal of seeing beauty really comes through meeting a man, right. Mm -hmm. um, like I'm not gonna throw out that this wouldn't necessarily pass the Bechdel test, but I'm also gonna throw out that this you know would not pass the Bechdel test here. Not like that's an important metric to me necessarily, but I think it's telling that these women are all sort of conan lady women mm -hmm. you know yeah they, oh there, there, there is that one on scene. this guy and like you know i don't know there is there is that one scene where to say us and to say and talk to each other so i i guess that scene passes the bechdel test i suppose i suppose technically it uh, it does because they're not talking about a man they're talking about uh whether or not beauty exists until they yeah. start talking about Turgeon and how he's a nice man. No, oh, that's proof true. Of the existence yeah. of beauty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't enter in until the end of the conversation. So <laughs> that's, that's fair. They don't talk exclusively again. about a man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but your 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 point mostly stands. Yes. That 
that yeah okay so uh wow i i i feel like we could just gush about uh the dying earth uh, until the sun go goes out. I kind of, but... I kind of feel bad about putting this the whole of the dying earth in a single episode. I feel like we could have cut it in half. Talked about Mazurian and Turgeon in uh, in one episode, and the other stories in another. Or put Ulan Dahor and Gael in one episode, and the uh, the other four in another. Yep. Yeah, well, lesson lesson learned. Yeah. Hindsight's um, twenty twenty. Jeff, where on the internet can people find you? I can't remember the last time that I updated it, but I still have the website jeffwick.com, and on Twitter I am at jeff underscore wick, that's W-I-K and um, you can still seek out and find my comic retelling of uh, La Morte to Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory Arthur dies at the end And Peter Foxhoven where on the internet can people find you? Uh, it's still, I don't think, operational, because I haven't had a lot of time to put it in, and I'm tech illiterate, but cromcountthedead.com. At the very least, it might still route you to the, the WordPress site, which is a blog that I do a poor job of maintaining. Oh, well, maybe maybe some someday some adventurer will, will happen on the desiccated ruin of your of your blog and will we'll find uh, the lost treasures there, therein. Unless it's been taken over by a giant demon face. Yeah, that's... Either way. Yeah, I'm cool with either. Yeah. Seems inevitable, uh, really. Yeah, we, we didn't even touch upon all the cool things in the in the mu- Museum of Man, but uh, I guess we have to leave some things for the for the readers to discover on their their own. There's, there's a giant demon face. There's a it's lot awesome. of stuff. There's a lot of stuff in this book that we skipped over, uh, yeah. listener. The, just the description of Mazurian's garden is, uh, I think, worth the price of admission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. You can find me, Jeffrey Wynn, on Twitter at Jeffrey D. Wynn. That's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-D-W-I-N-N. And I'm also on Instagram with the same handle. You can email me by emailing the Tome Show at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Make sure to put Appendix N in the subject line so they get it to me. We recommend that every listener read the books that we're reading so that you can best follow our discussions. Your first stop should be your local used bookstore. But if you can't find what you're looking for there, be sure to use the Amazon affiliate link on our website, thetomeshow.com, when you shop on amazon.com. The Tome Show gets a few pennies to pay the bills, and we sure do appreciate it. Our next episode will cover two more stories of Fofford and the Grey Mauser, Claws from the Night and the Seven Black Priests. And later this summer, we'll dive into a novel by Fletcher Pratt called The Blue Star. Don't wait. Join the discussion today by sending us your comments. This has been a Tome Show production of the Appendix N Podcast, Episode 44, Mazurian the Magician by Jack Vance. Thanks for listening. We're friends. Ouch.
giant paperback uh, published by by Orb that collects all four volumes. Well, I have the same one. That art on the front is amazing. It's amazing. It looks like nothing that's in the actual stories. Yep. Oh, I haven't seen that. I'm using the uh, Kindle edition. It, it looks like a giant kind of space station thing with with a big old red landing platform. Space station? And there's kind of a space station or something that could be a space station in the last story. In the I mean, Dying Vance, Earth, I guess. Vance doesn't really describe things in too much detail, so things can really look look like anything. But when when he does describe things, he says they're made of like stone or wood or they look like... Uh, houses from yeah well i mean the museum of man looks like a museum of man what what more description do you need than that yeah exactly exactly (laughs) so i was i was actually like impressed by how much they reminded me of uh like tales of arthurian questing knights yeah how so uh, they just seem to like, 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 especially like I've, I've never actually read like Lamort Le, Le, Le d'Arthur, but like I know like 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 lots of French authors wrote stuff that was kind of like that, and like people just seem to start in in a place and they get a quest and they they go somewhere and there's not really any kind of sense of ge- geography like the world's just one big big ocean yeah. and they en- encounter things that like seem like they they might be random even if there's really like like a reason for it did the did the comparison never never strike strike you? It did not occur to me, but I will say that having heard you say it, I can see that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, it's 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 it, it also re- reminded me of 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 Dunsany because it was because it's you know he he wrote in a in a very dreamlike style, although um, not not I, I guess there's more plot here than Dunsany. It's a it's a it's it's if Dunsey wrote actual stories maybe yeah I don't well, know. well there's plot in that stuff happens I don't know that there's plots in the sense of I don't know if Aristotle would call it a plot right yeah. because it, it it is just kind of a series of unconnected scenes to a certain extent and mm-hmm. I don't just mean the fact that we're talking about six separate short stories right um, but to a certain extent, it's uh, it, 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 the, the, the connections here are very loose. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it looked to me like Leanne the Wayfarer died twice, once at the end of his own story and once midway through uh, Tissé's, his story. Well, it, I think uh, Vance, Vance makes, makes a point to say that, that... Ah, we lost him again. I think. Peter, are you still with us? Oh yeah, I, I am. Oh. I just didn't want to talk over, and then Jeff pops in, and it'd be a thing, you know. Yeah. But this is that sucks. Yeah, that's I'm unfortunate. Back. Yeah, you uh, you you dropped off mid sentence, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Chun the unavoidable got got me. Yeah. But uh, he he let let me go. That's good. It didn't you still have all your eyes? Well, he's Chun yes. the Unmerciful. He's not necessarily Chun the. Uh, he's Chun the Unavoidable, not necessarily Chun the Unmerciful. Yes, 